Well, amen. Are we going to... I'm not used to how, how uh, loud it is because I'm usually back there, so I hope it's, it seems loud to me. Is it loud or is it just normal? Okay, it's a bit loud. If we can turn it down a little, that would be great. Uh, so glad to be with you and so glad, to, again, that we're going through the book of Acts. I find the book of Acts one of the most uh, fascinating book. You know, again, it's a history book. Uh, we see these events uh, transpire. And we've been looking at chapter number four, and chapter number four really details what we call the rise of persecution. It's something that the Lord Jesus already said, again, would happen to his church, but here we have it again going right here. In the last two chapters, we've seen uh, Peter and John go to the gate, beautiful, they're on their way to worship this great God that happens to be above, and they're met by a lame man who's been lame from birth, and they heal him. You know, and they use that opportunity to direct the hearts um, and, and the people that happen to be there to Jesus Christ. And they preach the gospel. We see they're arrested. And after they're arrested, they're thrown in jail for, the, for, the, for that night. And then they're brought before the Sanhedrin. They're put on trial. They preach the gospel again. They're warned not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they're released and let go. You know, and it's incredible, again, even as we pointed out last time, because this is such an image, you know, it's an image for us, isn't it? It's, it's an illustration of what hard-heartedness looks like, what, what defiance against the gospel looks like. You know, and it's no different than, than, than in our day. Why do people reject the gospel? And I think a lot of times they've come up with various different reasons. But really, when you look at it, there's an animosity, there's a bias, there's a bent, there's a prejudice already against Jesus. Otherwise, they don't stand in a neutral position. They don't listen to the gospel, but their hearts are already set against that gospel. And we realize that that rejection of Jesus Christ is really irrational. I mean, can you think of the, uh, the Sanhedrin that happens to be there? Here's this man that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt. They've seen him daily, you know, that it has been healed by the power of God. You know, it has been made to, again to uh, walk, to leap, to jump, to dance. You know, and instantaneously, and uh, as they preach the reason why in Jesus Christ, there's a logical message about sin, about the need of a Savior, about Jesus Christ and why he came. You know, and there's a rejection of that message. And what we walk away for, uh, from is we get a picture of unbelief. This is what unbelief looks like. But also, when you look at this passage of Scripture, we're also given a picture of belief. You know, what it looks like to have, truly have faith in Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing, again, about this faith, it shows the faith that we have in opposition, right? You know, faith we have when people are against us, against our Lord, against our faith, against our walk. You know, you think of this whole situation because it really begs the question, what does true, authentic faith truly look like? Because they're threatened with their lives. They, they, the call has been going out, you know who we are, you know what we've done with Jesus don't you preach in this name anymore. And the question is, again, what are they going to do? And what they do is what true born-again believers truly do. And let me just say this, that there is a faux faith, isn't there, or a false faith, one that says, I believe in Jesus, but really does not believe in Jesus. And the litmus test, how we can tell the true one by the false one, is the trials that we go through, is the persecution that many times we face as believers. I mean, Jesus even said that. He gave uh, that illustration, that parable of four soils. You know, and he described the one that was sown among the, the uh, rocky soil this way. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Here's the problem. Yet, he has no root in, in himself. How do we know? But endures for a while. 
And when tribulation, look at what it says, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, in other words, this faith in Christ, immediately he falls away. So when you look at it, the litmus test, whether we happen to be a true born-again believers, are the trials that, that we go through. The opposition that we have faced in our lives as born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it really, when we look at this, we're saying, what does true faith really do? What does authentic faith in Jesus Christ look like? You know, how does it respond to this opposition? And one of the ways it responds is that it identifies with Jesus Christ by identifying with the people of God, right? It doesn't run away from them. You think, you know, if you could lose your life. You know, don't you preach Christ? And where's the first place that they go? The most dangerous place. And that happens to be with believers. You know, and they identify. They come here for strength. They come here for encouragement. They come here for mutual edification. You know, and if you had to be a true born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know how valuable the church of Jesus Christ truly is. You know, in times of trial, in times of stress, in times of adversity that happens to be in your life, in times of opposition, you realize beyond a shadow of a doubt that one of the means of grace that God has given us is the people of God. You know, and what we do in times of that adversity is we run to our resources. We run to other believers in Jesus Christ. We identify with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not all that they do. They realize the fickleness and the weakness of their human heart. So what they do is they offer these prayers again to God. God is the sovereign power. God is the one who can give us the grace, give us the mercy that is absolutely necessary in order to obey him and follow him. You know, and as they're praying to God, they're reminded of the word of God. You know, and that's the third thing that they do. They interpret life. Think about it, because the word of God tells us about God, doesn't it? You know, it reveals who God truly is. It's specific and special revelation that we could not know about God just by looking at the general revelation that happens to be around us. And tells us who God is. Tells us who we are. But it also describes our environment that happens to be around us and how we respond to the environment that happens to be again around us. And it becomes an interpretative grid to understand life and everything that happens to be again about life. And let me just say this, and I... I I want you to get it because I think a lot of times we fall off the edge right here. If I was to ask beyond a shadow of a doubt, if all of you believed in the inspiration of the word of God, inspiration of the Bible, that this is God's production, that it's been breathed out by God, I think every single one of you would say, amen, praise the Lord, this is his book. You know, and if I asked you, if you thought beyond a shadow of a doubt that the word of God was absolutely sufficient for life and godliness, I think most of you would say yes. In fact, I think all of you would say yes. But I think in practice, you know, we say many times that the word of God is inspired by God, but I don't think we really believe, you can see this in Christendom so often, we really believe that the word of God is absolutely sufficient for my trials, for my difficulty, for my struggles, for the things that happen to be going through in our lives. You know, we pray, please God, show us a sign. You know, give me a nudge here or there, an urge here or there. Otherwise, the word of God is not enough. I need something else from you. You know, the whole psychology, the whole um, uh, psychiatry f uh, field is all about that. I can remember just talking to a believer just a few weeks ago. And he says, we need these people. 
You know, we, they're experts that happen to begin in the fold. Other words, the Word of God, you're just so naive to believe that the Word of God is enough for whatever I'm going through. My issues, my trials, my problems that happen to begin in life are just too great. They're too big. You know, it's easy to say that I believe that the Word of God, I believe that the Bible is inspired of God. But let me ask you right here this morning. Do you believe that it's absolutely sufficient for everything you're going through, for every struggle you're going through, for every trial that you are going through right here and right now? Do you believe it gives light? Do you believe, again, it interprets? Do you believe it gives gives you direction? Because here's the amazing thing. We're not going through any trial greater than these individuals go through. If you preach Christ, we are going to put you to death. Right? Right? None of us are going through that. And what do they do? They turn to the Word of God. And, and here's the amazing thing. They only have the Old Testament to go to. But they realize God had spoken the Old Testament. And guess what? It is sufficient for us to give us direction, to understand the trials that we are going through in our lives. And how would you? Could you say that? You know, in all the adversity, and all of the trials that happen to be in your life, where are you turning? Are you turning to human philosophy? Are you asking God for something outside of his word? God, give me a sign. Give me a little nudge. Give me a little urge that happens to be again right here. You know, drop something before me. Are you, are you, or are you looking in the word of God? This is where these believers looked. You know, and I really want us to look at that this morning. I hope it will encourage us to recognize the value of what God has given to us. It really is sufficient for anything that we will face. Sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. And what it teaches us is the state of the world that happens to be around us, doesn't it? The world that we live in, it explains it, doesn't it? It shows us this world. You know, so after they begin to pray here in, uh, in uh, Acts chapter 4, we, we, we have them come. You know, and it speaks, it speaks in verse number uh, uh, 25, who? Through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. In other words, David spoke this of something he was going through. But here it is, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God for our edification, for our understanding. And here are the words, why do the heathen, or why do the Gentiles rage? And the people plot in vain. Now, think about it, because there's questions being asked. David is asking questions. You know, no doubt even, even the apostles and those who happen to be gathered with them are asking questions. You know, why are we going through this thing? And here's the amazing thing. We ask questions, don't we? From the earliest age, right? Why does the sun come up in the morning? Why isn't it out all day? Why when I take this little switch, I turn it on, do the lights come on? You know, I go in the opposite direction and what? They go off, and I can, I can remember in science class that was actually explained, I still don't get it, you know, uh, I just know it does, it works. But we ask questions, you know, why does so-and-so not like me? You know, why is life so hard? Why am I being sent through things that I never thought I would go through? Right, big questions of life. And here's the amazing thing, the Word of God does not shy away from these big things. But it actually gives a light. It actually gives a direction. It actually speaks forth, again, about all of these things that we face. I mean, think about it. You know, uh, do you ever look at that with the things that are going on in our world and say, this is why we're going through these things? Let me ask you the question. Why is there a war in the Ukraine right now? Why? 
Why is North Korea flexing their muscle about setting off in a nuclear bomb? You know, why do despotic leaders starve their own citizens? And we can even narrow the field. You know, why am I going through the things that I'm going through? Why does a government pass certain legislation that seems in my, um, uh, my limited understanding so idiotic? You know, I can remember reading a Facebook um, a post from a young man and it, was, and it asked a question. And here's the question. Why is life so hard? You know, and you look at people and they're depressed. You look at people and they're sad. You look at people and they're hopeless. And let me ask you, as a people of God, in the midst of this crooked, this perverse uh, world that we live in, do we ever turn to the Word of God? to have answers of the world that we live in. Because these questions are asked in Psalm chapter 2, aren't they? You know, these global, these universal questions about our world that happens to be again around us. And the amazing thing, that God doesn't shy away from the enormity of the problem. But he describes it uh, perfectly. Now, now everyone, even in the uh, uh, disciples' uh, time, thought of Psalm chapter 2, in fact, even before the disciples, even before Jesus Christ looked at Psalm chapter 2 as a messianic psalm. But it also is a psalm describing David in the adversity and the trials and the tribulations that he happened to be going through and describing them. But it is a messianic psalm. You know, and what the disciples are doing, they're taking this messianic psalm, they're applying it to Jesus so they can understand what they are going through. Because we're not going to look at it today, but look at the application in verses 27 and 28. It says, for, you know, we've just quoted the psalm, and here it is. For truly in this city they were gathered together, this is the explanation of these verses, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do, here's the sovereignty of God, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so that's what Psalm 2 is all about. Psalm 2 is all about the world that we live in, isn't it? And it's 12 verses, and it's really easy to to, uh, uh, outline. In fact, I'll give you the outline. 12 verses, and there's four parts of it, and they're each in three verses. And the first one describes the rebellion of the world that happens to be again around us. You know, this world is set against our great God and Jesus Christ. And the next three verses, even though it's set, even though the powers that be are set against it, there's one who is sovereign. There's one who is reigning. There is one who happens to be ruler of all, and it is our great God. And the, th- and, and the third part happens to be again about his son, that his son will reign and rule. The anointed one is coming. And then the last three verses are a call of repentance. It's an amazing psalm because here you have rebellion, and here you have at the end, Repentance. And why do you have a rebellion? Well, it explains it. And right here, why why the call of repentance? It's because God is sovereign. In the end, Jesus Christ will reign and rule. It's a marvelous psalm. You know, that really describes everything that we happen to be going uh, through. So he starts it right at verse number one. And let me give you Psalm chapter two, verse number one, because it's almost verbatim here in uh, Acts chapter uh, 25. But it says, why do the nations rage? And the people 
and the, the peoples plot in vain. You know, so when you look at the word nations, again, when you look at the Greek and you look at the Hebrew, it can be interpreted many different ways, both the Greek and the Hebrews. It can be interpreted nations, Gentiles, uh, the heathen. You know, so in various different translations, you'll have various different words, but they all mean the same things, and it's basically this, the leaders of these nations. You know, and it speaks, again, of the raging. You know, we, we see this on the news. We see this article. We see this article. We see this article. We see this anger. We see this frustration. And let me tell you, it is an apt description of the world leaders. It doesn't matter what country you belong in. It doesn't matter if you're in a democracy. It doesn't matter if it's a totalitarian government. This describes the leaders that happen to begin in there. And the word rage is very picturesque. Because if you've ever been by the ocean, how, ma- how, ma- how, ma- how many people have e- ever lived by the ocean? Anybody? You? Well, well, if you've ever lived by the ocean, when a storm comes in, it's terrific to look at. And you don't see anything like it on, on Lake Erie. I'm sorry. You, know, you just don't see. You know, the last time, again, we happened to be again in uh, North Carolina. And, and the last time I saw a storm, the waves were about 20 feet. I mean, it was amazing. You could see these big swells, you know, come in. You know, and if anything that happens to be, again, out there, it's just thrown. You know, and we talk about, and this is a word that's used, the sea raging, right? It's just throwing things. You know, and it's an apt description of the leaders uh, that we see. You know, there's a rage that happens to be, again, of sin. You know, and there's no peace. You can take any country, Right? Take any country that happens to be out there. You can throw a dart that happens to be on, a, on an atlas. And every country is raging. The leaders are raging. There's no peace. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Why? Because peace only comes with a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, it's an inner peace today, isn't it? Regardless of my circumstance, I have this Christ. I have this God. And the nations, again, certainly do not have it. But it not only describes, again, the nations, it describes the people who live in there. It says the people plot in vain, right? The people. In other words, the citizens that happen to begin that make up these nations. You know, the various different ones. It doesn't matter if Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter, again, what creed, what race. People plot. And when it speaks of plot, it's, it's speaking of planning. In other words, again, here I have this idea of what I want to do with my life. You know, there's a uh, something in mind. You know, there's a plan. You know, I'm going to do this, this, and this so I can have this end. And this is what it says about that. It's empty. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever noticed what a, uh, what I would call a lack of satisfaction and contentment that happens to begin in our world? You know, you see it. People have goals for their life. I want to do this. 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 And sometimes they achieve those. And at the end, I can remember a young uh, girl that I used to work with. She uh, was 16 years old, and she was planning her wedding when she was 19 years old. And she got married when she was 19 years old. And I can remember when she came back from her honeymoon, she said this to me. She said, Kevin, it didn't do what I thought it would do. You know, all these years of planning it, and I've never felt more empty in my life. And here's the amazing thing. It doesn't matter how much money, how much sex, how much free time, or anything else that happens to be in the world that you want and you thrive at, and you might even get it. And guess what? At the end, it's just vanity. At the end, it's absolute emptiness. 
You know, and you just look at the world that happens to be around us. There's a word that people use of themselves all of the time. And you know what it is? It's this. I'm needy. You know, and why? Because they're, they look at it, they're just not filled. And they use that word needy, needy, needy. And here's the amazing thing. We have one need. And that's found in the Lord Jesus. Now, here's the problem with us as believers in Jesus is many times we look at worldly success. We look at the world that happens to be around us. We look at the things that they have, the positions that they have, the relationships that they have. And we many times are duped to think that that's where life, joy, satisfaction, contentment is found. You know, life, joy, satisfaction is found in Christ. Being rightly related to Him, following Him. You know, and what we have to do is many times come back to the Word of God and really interpret, again, the Word of God to interpret things that happen to be again around us. So, here's the question now. Because God has accurately described your position in life. He's described, again, your little circle, and He's described the wider circle that you exist in. Now, here's the question. Why do people plot vain things? If there's no joy, if there's no satisfaction, why do nations rage? And that's where he starts to give the interpretation. That's where he starts to tell us why. And you can see that in verse number 26, because it says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together. And then he says this, right? They're set, a, set themselves, they're gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And this was true of David's time. And this is the whole application. It's true of the disciples' time. And by extension, here it is, it's true of our time. You know, uh, this gives us understanding of the times and seasons, of the struggles, of the opposition that we face. So much so that we don't have a defeatist attitude. What's happening? What's happening in my world? What's happening in my life? I'm trying to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, but actually a triumphal attitude that I can exist, I can respond properly. Let me just let the cat out of the bag. You know who wins in Psalm chapter 2? Anyone know? Who wins in chapter 2? Psalm chapter 2. Christ, the anointed. And here's the amazing thing. When we are serving this great God, when we have faith in this great Christ, we're on the winning side of history. Uh, do we realize that? It should give us such encouragement. It doesn't matter what kind of opposition that we are faced in the here and now to really serve Him. So yes, there's people who oppose us. There's individuals that want us to suffer. There's individuals that stand against us. But the reason why is given in verse number 26. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against your anointed. So this is explaining why there's rage. This is explaining why there's such as feeble and empty plots that happen to be again out there. And when it describes the kings, when it describes the rulers, it's just describing those who happen to be uh, the governing officials which are representative of the people. So they're representing everyone, the government, again, that happens to be, be the, and it says set themselves. And it also, again, uses gather together, and then it uses this word against. Both of that, set themselves, gathered, what? Against. And here it is. Here's the problem. Against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, what's the word anointed mean? Anyone know, know it begins to of a C. It is what? The Christ, right? That's who they're gathered against. 
You know, and it doesn't matter if Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter again what um, time period you go. Uh, it doesn't matter what government happens to be uh, there. There's a hatred. There's a bias against the true God of heaven and against Jesus Christ. You know, because when you look at the international scale, when you look at all the nations that happen to begin gathered there, let me ask you beyond a shadow of a doubt, what's their great goal? And their great goal begins with a P. Anyone know it? Well, let me just give you a hint. It's the United, this is what the, why the United Nations exists. It's what? Anyone know? Begins with a P. Peace, that's right. You know, we want peace. And let, and let me say this, and I'm not trying to be cavalier. Peace is not hard. It really isn't. In one sense, it's getting really easy, isn't it? God gave it, this in one chapter. And you know what it's called? It's called the Ten Commandments. That's all it is. If everybody in the world, if all the governments that happen to be in the world, if all the people that happen to be in the world, were engaged in the Ten Commandments and say, you know, we're going to make this, you know, uh, our lives, our government, you know, beyond a shadow, that there would be peace, right? Right? First four commands, right, relate to God. You know, there's one God, and we're going to serve Him, and we're going to love Him, and we're going to trust in Him, and we're going to repent of our sins. We are going to be for this God. And then the next six have to do with our relationships with one another. Can you imagine a world like this? Exodus chapter 20, beginning of verse number 12, gives that second table of commands. It says, honor your father and your mother that the days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. How much of you, and you don't have to put up your hand, how, how, how many of you have family drama? Oh, none of you, right? All right, right. No, nobody has family drama, right? And, and we know it's wrong. We know that these are the individuals where there should be such closeness. And yet there's all this drama. All this war, all this animosity. Can you imagine if we were truly, truly, each person was convicted of getting along, honoring one another? How about this? You should not murder. Think of all the rage that goes in our hearts, all the animosity, all the hatred. Uh, you should not commit adultery. You know, looking over the other side of the fence, wondering what it would be like to have this person as a spouse or that person as a spouse. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. Think of all the lying. You should, and this is the big one. Listen to it. Imagine if every single person in the world was absolutely content with what they had. Imagine, contentment's a wonderful gift, isn't it? Doesn't matter how little you have, doesn't matter how, how much you have. Contentment is a wonderful gift. And listen, listen what it says. It says, uh, you shall not cover your, uh, I'm, yeah, yeah, you, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or your male servant or your female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You know, imagine a world where people actually looked at the Ten Commandments and said, you know, this is the template of life. I need to be rightly related to the God of all eternity. He's given me revelation about his son. He's given me revelation about who he is. And I need to be rightly related to those that happen to be around us. Peace, in one sense, is not that difficult. So here's the question. If it's not that difficult, what is the problem? And the problem is, here it is, the kings, the rulers, the people of our lands hold themselves against the Lord 
have positioned himself, have a bent, a natural disposition against God and his anointed. This is how Paul describes the problem in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 7, but he describes it again this way, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Now, let me, let me say as good Calvinists, we many times again emphasize the end, indeed, it cannot. But the part that we have to really see is the mind. The inner person is set, right? That's set against God. Right, his mind, his inner thoughts, his inner being, his inner emotions is absolutely a set against the God of all of eternity. That, that's why when you look at the uh, cross, you have all the major categories of people that happen to be again right there. You have the Romans, you have the Gentiles, you have the religious leaders, you have the common folk, you have everybody that's set against Jesus Christ. You know, and it's why... Remember what they're trying to understand. Let's bring it all back. They're trying to understand the persecution. Why do we have this threat? Is there something wrong? Is there something that we are doing that we ought not to do? Is there something that we need to change? And they're trying to understand the world that they are living in, right? And they open up the Word of God, and here it is, millennia before, one millennia before, here's David writing this psalm of his own time, of his own experience, of the own frustration, of the own people that are set against Him. Here they bring it. And Jesus, we see this. Now we see ourselves right here. And for the last 2,000 years, we see this going on. You know, and this is so valuable, isn't it? Because I think a lot of times when things are not going our way, we ask that question. What am I doing wrong? What do we need to change? I mean, we can feel it. We're a small congregation, right? Here it is. Here it is the government. Here it is other people. You know, they're pressing us and pressing us and pressing us. Here it is the powers that happen to be again, and they're pressing us. Here it is, you know, I'm trying to live out my convictions. I'm trying to live out my Christianity at work. And here it is. I'm being pressed. I'm being pressed. I'm being pressed. And here's the question that comes. What am I doing wrong? And here's the answer that Scripture gives. It's the absolutely nothing. You know, what happened in David's day is happening... In, in Jesus' day, which is happening again in the apostles. You can see this all the way through the book of Acts, you know, which is happening in our day in the last 2,000 years of church history. So, here it is. What can we glean from that? Well, what are some observations that we can really use as far as nuts and bolts that help us to live in this world that happens to be again around us? Well, let me just give you a few. And one is to remember as we seek to minister the gospel, as we seek to be that gospel light and even preach forth the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen from the grave, this is what we can expect, right? This is what we will see. You know, so we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be, again, all of a sudden eyebrows up when we see the government want to pass legislation that is against us to preach the gospel, to make known Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised when people call us narrow and bigoted and unloving and uncaring and even rage at us. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We should not be surprised when we face opposition in the world. Right? And why? Because this is how I interpret my life. Right? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning of verse number 12, he says, Beloved, are you talking to believers? Do not be surprised 
at the fiery trial. Now, why do you think he wouldn't just say trial? Why do you think he says fiery? Is, is it comfortable? Right? Is it ideal? Is it a little headache? Somebody took a bigger cookie than me? Now, you know you get jealous, okay? Right? Fiery trial when it comes upon you. And here's God's sovereignty to test you. And he says, don't be surprised. Why? As though something strange were happening to you. Why isn't it strange? Why isn't it strange? Well, let's go back to David. Here it is. A thousand years before. What's going on in his life? Right? We can go, 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 go. Here comes Christ. What happened to Christ? What's happening to the apostles? What's happening through church history? Oh, yeah, just like the word of God said. Right? But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, listen to what it says, it's amazing. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Wow! Isn't that amazing? You know, you look at Christians and you see this all the time. They're venting against the government. Right? They're venting against other people who vent against them. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And you know what Peter says? You know what the Word of God says? You know what God says through Peter? You know what God says through David? Don't be surprised. This is the way I told you that it was going to be, beyond a shadow of a doubt. You know, in fact, the opposite is true. This is a sign that you're one of mine. This is a litmus test. When you go through the test and you keep believing and trusting and serving and following and announcing me, this is a sign that you're one of mine. This is a sign that you're in the light, that you're in Christ. You know, it's the good news. So one of the things that we can glean from this beyond a shadow of a doubt is this is what we can expect in the world that we live in. But another thing that we have to realize is that the Word of God gives us instruction it gives us light, gives us direction how we are to respond. So when we face that opposition that happens to be again in our life, when we face that rebellion that happens to be around us, when we face and other people's sin splash against us, you know, how are we to respond? What are we to realize the people that happen to be around us, their greatest need? You know, because I am amazed when I look at this type, uh, passage of Scripture because I try to put myself in the text and I try to ask the question, how would I respond? And let me tell you, I'm an ungodly individual and I answer that question many times. Because how I respond many times is not how they responded. Because the way that they asked for in verse number 29 is this, and now Lord, look upon their threats, right? Their threats are real. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now think about it. Think about all the difficulties, all the problems, all of the trials, all of the stresses, all of the suffering you're going through. And when you come to God and you pray, what do you pray for? And if you're like me, more often than not, we pray for the grace of release. Isn't it true? God, take that person away. Take that trial away. Take that suffering. I don't like it. Yeah, 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 I know you're trying to do good. Yeah, yeah, just take it away. Instead of the grace of endurance, instead of God give me the grace of perseverance that I might make much of you, 
Instead of the grace, Lord, help me to be a witness to this person. They need to see Christ. They need to recognize his forgiveness. They need to recognize his mercy and grace that heavens be on the cross. And I'm so weak. You know, I'm so feeble. You know, I want to respond. And how do people, when they're raged again, how, how do people most often respond? They most often respond how? With rage. And what are we called to do? We're called to be gospel lights in this dark world. And how often do we pray, Lord, I know you're sovereign in this situation. You know, you're, you know the threats. You know the situation. Help me to be a witness of Jesus Christ. God's given us a mission, hasn't he? He's given us a co-mission. And here's the thing. We know the will of God. I am to be this light in this dark world, in this place uh, that God has put me to. And here's the amazing thing about trials, and you know this about trials. Trials will either sharpen us and sharpen our focus, sharpen our character, and place it on Jesus Christ so much so that we're more determined to make much of him. We have so much more confidence in him, and God will put us through that fiery trial, through that crucible, and what will come out, it will be more finer than gold. It can have that effect, or it can have the opposite effect. So much so that I am consumed with the trial, I'm consumed with the unfairness of the trial, I'm consumed with my suffering and everything else like this, that it all becomes about that, and I respond much like the world that happens to be around me rather than an ambassador of Jesus Christ who's been sent on a mission, who's been sent with a commission to make known Jesus Christ. You know, so the word of God, again, explains our world, but it also explains how we are to function, how we are to respond to that 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 happens to be around us. But there's a third observation that we can make in the text. And this is an amazing one, and that's the whole point of Psalm chapter 2. Because when the rulers of the age, when people of the age, when the vast majority of the population rage against God and his anointed, there's one that's still sitting on the throne. There's one who is is still in control and directing all human history to an intended end. And do do we forget about that? You know, if God is on the throne, if God has ordained these trials, if God has my good in his glory in mind, can I trust him? You know, Psalm chapter 2, verses 4 to 6 says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs. Who's the he there? The he begins with a big G. And it's God. It's the only time that we read in the Word of God, I could be wrong about this, but I, but I believe I'm right. It's the only time in the Word of God where God laughs. And what's he laugh about? Right? He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them. Right? These rebellious people who shake their fist at God in derision. And look what happens. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying and terrifying them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, on uh, my holy hill. Who reigns in the end? According to this passage of Scripture, who reigns in the end? And I know we know this, but we don't live in light of it. Who reigns in the end? King Jesus, right? 
Right? And guess what? Because we sing these songs like the world, we're so defeated by the world and we sing these hymns, we sing these songs, we come to church so discouraged and we leave many times so discouraged. But let me tell you again, we are on the winning side of history. And let me tell you, if we're on the winning side of history, then the commission that Jesus has given us will not fail. It will produce, again, God's company the people of his name for his eternal glory. So, in a day and age, and I'm going to say it again, where many Christians, right? right? This is inspired. This is inspired. Yeah, yeah, it's all of God's word. Many Christians have lost their confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture and all your difficulties and all your struggles trying to understand your world, trying to understand your heart, trying to understand the people that happen to begin around you, where are you turning for light? Where are you turning for guidance? The mission continues, and God has given us his word. So regardless of what we're going through, let's be people of the book. Regardless of what we are going through, let's join together to make much of Christ and announce him to the world that happens to be around us. Let us be busy in the making of maturing of disciples for the glory of God and based on the word of God, this mission that he has sent us in cannot fail. Praise him. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at this text, our hearts are just amazed at your goodness, at your grace in each one of our lives. And Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, it really is a light to our path. Lord, it really gives us direction. And it, Lord, it really is sufficient for everything that we will ever go through. Lord, to realize who you are, to realize who we are, to realize the greatest need of those that happen to be around us, and to realize our greatest need, to trust in you, to follow you, and to do, Lord, your revealed will. We thank you so much. Just be with us now as we close. In Jesus' name, amen.